morning, as Jacob would say, buenos dias. Okay? So, glad to see all of you this morning as we come together to worship. It's one of the things that pastor's been preaching about, the fellowship, not only with God, but also with one another. And what a privilege we have as believers to be able to do that, to come together to fellowship one with another. And it's wonderful, and I th we thank the Lord for that. Um, this morning, as we, we continue, uh, there, if you have your bulletin, you, you'll see that in the back page, you'll see the times and the, uh, and the dates for the ministries here at El Paso Bible Church, and also the ongoing ministries, also uh, for Juanas and also the Sunday uh, evening uh, youth topics listed there for you. And also found in our, on our web pages. And as you can see this morning, we gather not only to fellowship one another, but also to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that he did for us this morning as we partake together of the elements. And so we thank the Lord for that wonderful privilege we have. Um, continuing this morning, uh, I would ask you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 12 as we as I read verses 1 and 2 this morning. Verses 1 and 2, if you're from the old school like I am, you'll remember that those are some of the verses that were very familiar with BMA, Bible Memory Association. And, and it was some of these verses we used to memorize quite a bit. Uh, but we used to memorize them in the King James even. Okay, so that's even a little bit tougher than, than we're doing with the New King James. But anyway... Continuing this morning on verses, uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 in the book of Romans. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I've always, people ask, how do we know God's will? I think it's very clear here in this passage is how to, you know, know God's will. And so I pray that you will continue to just continue to read those verses during the week and then allow God to, to just open our hearts and our minds. Um, as we continue this morning, uh, it's a time that we can pray for our church, pray for our pastor, pray for our families, pray for those that are not here, those that are sick and are not be able to be here. And, and, and if you um, receive our prayer uh, emails, you'll know the, the, all the people that we pray for during the week here at El Paso Bible Church and other things that are going on also that we need prayer for, like the ministries here at El Paso Bible Church and for our pastor and his family especially. So this morning, let us let's just uh, gather together and pray together. Thank you. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your love for us, your tender mercies, and all these things, Father, which just exceed from your, from your wonderful character. And Father, we realize that without you, we'd be, we'd be helpless and hopeless. And this morning, Lord, I just pray for those that are not with us, that are here, that are not here, Father, due to sickness, others due to traveling, and other many issues, Father, that can affect us on a, 
uh, on a daily basis that for some reason we may not be able to be here. You know what the wonderful thing about all this, Lord, is that you know every bit about us. And we thank you so much for that, Lord, that you will answer every prayer. No prayer goes lost, Father, or gets lost. You will answer our prayers, Father, as we pray for those that um, are in our hearts or in our minds. And so, Father, this morning, we just lift them up to you in the name of Jesus. We lift up the service. Our pastor, as he opens a message to us through, through a very difficult, difficult book, Lord, first book of John. And, Father, we continue to ask for your help in understanding, Lord, and also, Father, that you just give, give a pastor clarity of words this morning. Thank you, Lord, for all your goodness. And even as we conclude our service, Father, with remembering the Lord Jesus Christ, that he gave himself a, as a great sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you and we love you. We pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Would you stand with us?
Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Cause shame's done all that's stealing. And you're desperate for some healing. Let me tell you about my Jesus.
Storms may come and the winds may blow out remain. 
You may be seated. Well, good morning. A little rain this week. It's been a little weird, hasn't it? If you've been here long enough to know, awfully wet out there, but good for the trees and good for us, actually, in the long run, right? Uh, we're going to be continuing our study this morning in First John, which, as uh, Ernie mentioned in his prayer, is uh, not the easiest book, um, in a way. We'll see one of those facets today. Um, but I have noted as I've been walking around, well, I've been kind of half limping around, that a couple of y'all are with me there, half limping around today. So we ought to pray uh, for those of us who, who made it, but are, you know, as Daffy Duck used to say, singed, but triumphant, right? Uh, so we're going to pray for us too, um, and that the Lord blesses our time together today. So if you would join with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you uh, for your mercy in my case that uh, having made an unwise decision and hurt myself, that it wasn't as bad as it could be. Uh, Father, we pray for healing for those who need it, uh, for those who aren't here, but uh, Father, as well, for those who are here, uh, that we would avail ourselves of wisdom and treatment uh, to the best of our ability. And uh, Father, pray your blessings in our lives. Father, we pray also for your blessing on your time, on our time in your word. Father, that it would be a blessing to us as we fellowship together around it. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So we are here in, in the epistle of John, First uh, John 2, and uh, we've t- mentioned, right, that the, the topic, the subject, the subject of First John is fellowship. It is fellowship. Uh, John says that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we want you all to have this fellowship so that our joy, which is present now, would be made complete. And that's the topic. That's the subject. And so he immediately dives in talking about what is necessary for us to experience that so that we would have full joy. He talked about who God is. He says God is light. And since God is light, there's no exception. In Him, there is no darkness at all. And he, he mentions to us, guys, you have a sin problem. God is light, and in Him, there is no darkness at all. Full joy is what we want you to have, but you have a problem. And your problem is not your sin debt that's been paid. The problem being is that you're walking where God isn't. You are walking in darkness. You are making sinful decisions, or sinful acts are apparent in your life. And in God, there is no darkness at all. He is light, and so we have this problem. God is walking over here, <laughs> and you're his child, and you're walking over there. We got a problem, right? See, that's what we don't want. One of the things that we kind of lost track of in the last few years was you kind of got to be in the same proximity to each other to have fellowship, even human beings, Right? Yes? Right. We make allowances occasionally, you know, when illnesses and things like that. But in general, we've got to do that. Just saying the same thing is true. You're walking in the wrong spot. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If you're walking in the darkness, you're not in God's neighborhood. That's not where you're walking. So he says if you sin, you're supposed to confess that. You're not supposed to flagellate yourself, right? That's a, y'all don't even, do you even know what that term is? That's a, 
the self-whipping thing. They used to the medieval kind of torturing thing. You're not supposed to mortify the flesh that way. I mean, you read about the way monks used to treat themselves in order to put their flesh to death. Literally, they would go stand in the middle of a frozen stream in what is in Great Britain, you read about this, right? And they're dumping ice, ice bucket challenge before it was cool, right? But they're out there in the middle, and they're trying to mortify their flesh, trying to essentially destroy it and weaken it. That's not what confession is, although at times I'm sure they were confessing, you know, if I did that, I'd be confessing how stupid I was being, being out in the middle of January, in the middle of a river, in the middle of Great Britain, dumping ice water over myself. That would cause me a whole lot more sins than it would fix, I guarantee you that. Yeah? Especially you guys who grew up in the desert, right? Y'all are already cold. It was only 58 degrees at my house this morning. Y'all already got the wool coats out, right? Not, no shorts to be seen, right? Melissa's over here. She's already frozen. Jill's frozen. Who else is frozen? Are you kind of frozen, Isabel? Sarah's frozen. I just see extra jackets now since Sunday school. Y'all are all frozen. But you don't need to do that to yourself on purpose, right? You're supposed to confess. You're supposed to say the same things that God says about your sin. It was a sin. And he says that he forgives. He is faithful and just to do that. He forgives. Meaning that he's not now going to discipline you. He's not going to demand that you flagellate yourself. He's also not going to flagellate you. Remove discipline from your life so that you are able now to walk in freedom from discipline in your life at its most basic. It's an extrajudicial forgiveness, at least in this context. And I would argue that the vast majority of discussions of forgiveness are this, extrajudicial forgiveness. There are other words theologically that we use to talk about the propitiation, which Jesus also is for us and for the world. We're able to walk freely because of Christ's propitiation. And in that process, it could be intimidating. He's there with us guaranteeing that the environment is not a life-or-death environment, right? We're not in the court. We're not deciding whether we're going to live or die. We're deciding whether we're going to have discipline or not. And Christ stands with us as our advocate to remind us. Do you need to be reminded of that? That God doesn't hate your guts every once in a while. I'm your pastor, and occasionally I need to be reminded that God doesn't hate my guts. I do. Jesus does that for me because I fall down, guys. And for people like me, falling down could just be like not being good enough at something that I really wished I was good at. And I'm like, how could God even like that? I'm such a mediocre loser. Anybody? No? I'm the only one. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Y'all are still my friends. Anyway. He stands with us as a propitiation for our sins and for the world, all, the whole world. He says, this is not a new concept. What is, this is old. You've had it from the beginning. It's also new. It needs to be renewed in your life. It's never not relevant. It's something that you never get done with as long as you're walking on this earth and that you commit acts of sin and you do things that are not righteous towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's old. It's always been there from the beginning, and it is new each day. You need to renew that. He says, if you're loving your brother, 
This is the priority. Remember, it's an internal priority. The brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're loving your brother, then you're walking in the light. You can see where you're going. You can make good decisions relative to that relationship. If you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness, and most of your decisions aren't going to make sense, right? You can't decide where to go, what to do, how to act. Your relationship with your brother and sister in Christ is the key to that, that knowledge, the illumination that you have about the, where you are in your life and what decisions you should make. And we ought to make that clear, remember, that First John is not a test of life. It is not a test of whether you're going to heaven when you die or not. It is the test of fellowship. And one of the key ways that we know this is that John says of this guy, if you hate your brother, you are walking in darkness. The way you ought to hear that is if a believer is hating his brother, he's walking in darkness. He's making bad decisions, immoral decisions, unrighteous decisions, decisions that warrant discipline from God. The reason I know that is because an unbeliever cannot hate his brother, can he? An unbeliever can hate me, but I'm not his brother, right? I mean, this is all over this text. This is about how brothers treat each other. And an unbeliever can hate me. Some of them do. Jesus said that would be the case. In fact, we're going to talk about that some more today. But if an unbeliever hates me, I am not his brother. I am not his brother. But John says that if you're hating your brother, you're a believer walking in darkness. You're walking in darkness. Now that brings us to today. That's a little bit of a review. That's real important most of the time, particularly in 1 John. It's very important that we make sure we remind ourselves of those definitions and categories. And today what we have is John addressing his audience, the people that he wrote this to. You realize that this was, not, this was not written to you. It was written for you. There was an actual audience that John was addressing that had actual issues that needed to be dealt with, and he's dealing with them. And he addresses the components of his audience, and he tells them, I'm just going to give you a preview. He says that no matter who you are, where you have been, or how long you've been a believer, or how much you know, or how much you don't know, all of this material is relevant to you. All of it. The message is important to you. Let's look at verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, notice the tense of the verb. It's a progressive presence. I'm writing right now. I'm getting ready to give you more material. And these are the reasons that I'm writing to you. So I've given you some material, but the material that is to come is applicable to each component of this audience each time. What I'm about to write, what he is fixing to do, because we're in Texas here, right? Nowhere else says fixing to do. I'm fixing to write to you guys some material here. Even in the South, I've only ever heard that here. Now, I might be wrong. I was wrong the one time. But he defines the groups. Now, remember, they're all brothers. They're all brothers in the Lord, but he does identify categories. And I think this is important. It's not a hierarchy 
exactly, but he defines them based on their experiences and their knowledge, which are diverse to some degree. We all have a diversity of experiences here. Yes? We do. I'm thankful for that. Gives us some good input on occasion. It's important. But he identifies that. They're all brothers, but he defines the categories based on a a familial illustration. He says the little children, those who, they don't have a lot of experiences and they don't have a lot of knowledge, but they are brothers. They know something. They know that they've been forgiven their sins for his name's sake. We should have some of those all the time. But you know something about little children, right? They can be a discipline problem. And if you don't deal with the discipline problems when they're little children, then you get adults that are a discipline problem, right? So categorizes that. He said, no, you need to hear this. You need to hear what it is to walk in the line and walk in the darkness. You need to know that, it, that there's a pivotal, a pivotal, pivotal aspect to how you treat your brothers in the church and what it says about you and what you need to do. You need to confess that sin when you sin, right? He talks to the fathers. This category, they have known things, they're intimately knowledgeable about Jesus Christ. They know him who was from the beginning. They know him. Remember, knowledge is not trust. Trust begins the relationship. Knowledge comes after, and that scares people. Scares people. To know that they, they have to begin a relationship based on trust. But you do it all the time. With people. And there's no different with you. You, you begin you begin as a child of God on the basis of trust but the fathers have been walking with the Lord for a long time and they know Christ need some of those around too don't we because when life gets hard you need to be able to say what is Jesus how is Jesus going to work that out and even sometimes the fathers say I don't know but I know he will right I don't know exactly everything about how God is going to work this out, but I know he will. And that's the knowledge of Christ. The young men, in some doctrinal climates, they call them the cage stage, right? That they, They're going to hurt people or themselves. They're so enthusiastic, right? You've got to stick them in a cage for a little bit. That's a category. They know a little more than the children. They know a lot less than the fathers, but they've really achieved some things. They've won some victories. One category. He says, I'm writing to you. All of this is applicable to you guys, whether you know a little and you've experienced a little, whether you know a lot and you've experienced a lot, or whether you're really kind of maybe foolishly resting on your own laurels. This is all for you. And then he changes the tense of the verb, and he says, I have written to you. And he addresses them all again. Meaning that, up to this point, the material that he's written is also for everybody. Also for everybody. Another reason why you can't say that chapter 1 is written to unbelievers, because John makes the application to the family, the church family, the young children, the fathers, the young men, a spiritual designation within the church. He says this, I have written, end of verse 13, I have written to you children, because you know the Father. That's 
because they know who Jesus is. Jesus says that I've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know the, they go together, right? You know the Father. I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. That's the same qualification there. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong. I expected a little bit of flexing out there, young men, but I didn't see any. He doesn't say that they're headstrong, but that could also be true. But they're strong. And the Word of God abides in them. In other words, they have learned some things. They're, they're exceptional. They don't know as much as the fathers, but they're strong. They're at a sweet spot. Their bodies are strong and their minds are growing. That's a nice spot to be in, guys. Don't get too used to it. Changes. The mind keeps getting stronger, but the body starts getting wonky like mine, sideways. I was talking about the walking wounded. Don't raise your hands who you are this morning. Right now my hips feel like they're like this. The Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In fact, you have experienced some victory in your life. Remember those things. Those are important in your life. He says, I, I have written to you. All those things are important. Now, a lot of people pick this section of heart into little bitty pieces, and I don't think that's the point. Um, they deconstruct the thing, and, and I really don't think that that's the issue. He's really he's reminding his audience of what he's doing here in this book right here. I don't think that's the most important thing. The most important thing to consider in the message at this point, I think, is what John is, is doing. And he's saying, what I am writing to you is meant to apply across the board all the time to everyone. It's meant to be bi-directional. The fathers don't outgrow it. The young men don't outgrow it. The children are growing into it, but they never grow out of it. It's always applicable, and there are no exceptions. This is important. The love that you have for your brothers and sisters in the Lord and the church is always a priority in your life, in the church especially. It is the priority in human relationships as far as the church is concerned. And a lot of philosophies of ministry lay that to the wayside in the interest of other things. John says don't do that. All of y'all need to be on the same page in this regard. Now, you may not understand where that's going, but John, I think, deals, is dealing with things, even though he's an apostle, and this is encouraging to me. <laughs> he's dealing with things in the audience that we all deal with, that we all have to anticipate. Uh, the same way that I think pastors and, and teachers, especially uh, boring guys like me who teach verse by verse, we get called boring all the time. In fact, one very notable pastor out there, and I won't name his name, you could probably go find it, he said that verse-by-verse verse exposition is just laziness, he says. Famous guy, he must be right. He said it on the internet. Actually, he said it in his book. He got quoted all over the internet. So it's lazy. So for guys who are boring and lazy like me, I'm being facetious. Boring and lazy like me run into this, though. John ran into it. It's encouraging, right? We've got people in any given church that we're speaking to, they presume that they don't know enough for this to matter. They're the little children. How am I supposed to understand all that? He's using million-dollar words up there. Well, y'all know how I feel about that. Pay attention to the definitions. When I use those big words, I define them. You can learn them after a while, and then we can move forward. 
But we got people that think that they don't know enough for this to matter. John says, no, it matters for the children. It matters for the little children. It matters for all those people. Uh, we've always got some people who think that because they've been walking with the Lord for decades, they know everything, and I don't have anything to say to them anymore. And John says, nope. Remember, he said, what, it's an old commandment, but it's new. You've had it from the beginning, but you need to renew it in your life every day. So that's not a category. And we've got people who are kind of in the middle, like those young men who think, well, I'm, I'm doing more for Jesus than that old guy. What does he have to tell me? I've won some victories in my life for Jesus. I'm winning for Jesus. John says, you need to hear this too. You need to make sure that the nature of your victories does not overshadow the priorities that Scripture has set for how you relate to your brother's in the fellowship. It might be old, but it's also new. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord or how long you haven't been walking with the Lord, what we've conquered for Jesus or what we know or don't know, what experiences we've had. The truths in the book, this book, this letter, are applicable all the time. And I think that's what John's getting at. It's always old, and it's always new. They are applicable. And it's statements like this that allow us to get out from under the kind of the burden of a certain tyranny that we feel. Because the culture places a tyranny on us as pastors, but almost anybody who communicates anything. But it's the, the, this tyranny, right, of relevancy, that burden, even preaching professors, even guys way back at Dallas Seminary were like, you, preacher, they would say, these are faithful men, I have nothing personally against them, they would say, you, you have to make this relevant, guys. You know how John made it relevant? He said, guys, it's relevant. It's relevant. Guys, it's relevant. As a parent, I've been a parent for a little while now. There are times where I had to say, you know, because I, I teach my kids. I show them how to do things. When they have questions, they say, Dad, do you know how to do this? I say, well, no, but we can find out. And we, we work through problems together and all that. Occasionally, I have to teach them something that they don't want to know. Y'all done that before? Sometimes that's a long and onerous process. We call that Josh Myers Immersion Academy. It's a promotion. If you give my sweet, loving, patient, kind wife too much trouble, you enter Josh Myers Immersion Academy of whatever it needs to be. And the motto of Josh Myers Immersion Academy is, I can teach it to you, but I can't care for you. I can teach it to you. I can admonish you. I can correct you when you're wrong. But I can't care about it for you. Same thing here. You're in Josh Myers Fellowship Immersion Academy. I can teach you. I can admonish you. I can correct you when there's failure. But I can't care for you. I mean, I care for you. I can't substitute care for you, right? I can't care for it in your place. You have to care for it. 
And John says this is applicable. This is relevant. So you need to care about it. So what should we care about? Well, he says in verse 15, the next command. It's an imperative. You don't like imperatives because you're an American in 2022. You don't like mandates, do you? I don't like mandates either from other humans, but I don't mind taking one from Jesus. You don't like to be told what to do? Oh, get over it. All right. Verse 15. Do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world. Now remember there's that category of young men that know a little more than the children but not as much as the fathers. I was that category once. In a certain context in junior high, my junior high homeroom teacher put signs, banners around because she thought that we were little heathens. And she was right. I said, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? About our speech. She was troubled by the crass and vulgar nature of our speech with each other. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? You know what we little sinners did right away? We Jesus juked that thing. We did. We did it. We took all of our Bible knowledge that had been poured into us and we started to rip that one apart. Well, the truth hurts and lies are never necessary, so we can't do that. And, and the truth is always, you know, we, anyway, we gave her such a hard time over that. So don't Jesus juke this thing because it's not right. Because some of y'all will think, well, doesn't God love the world? Does God love the world? He loved the world in a very specific way, did he not? That's John 3.16, right? Here's the thing about God's love. God's love is incorruptible. Right? Similar to how Jesus' holiness was incorruptible, right? He could go into places where the Pharisees wouldn't go. He could hang out with the lepers and the sinners. He could eat with them, and he didn't have to worry about impurity. Because he's the very source of purity. God is the very source of love. God, in a, I mean, it's a different context. He loves the world. But your love in this life is corruptible. And he says, do not love the world. Don't love the world. God loves the world because he is capable of loving the world without becoming subservient to it. And you are not. I am not. Because remember, love is not a Hallmark card. It's not remembering somebody's birthday or even, even lower barrier to entry, remembering their Facebook birthday, right? Don't you love that? 17 birthdays that Facebook demands that I acknowledge every day. 
That's not what love means in the Bible. <laughs> love means to obey. He's saying, don't love the world. Don't do what the world says you ought to do according to the world's values. That is a system of authority that is incompatible with what God wants you to do. And he warned his children not to do that because you and I don't have the capacity to love something without becoming subservient to it. That's not within the capacity of human love. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the Father's love is not in him. Now, people, gotcha, Pastor. They think they got all sorts of gotcha moments here. I had a three-hour supposed gotcha moment a few years ago over this very book. And a cold cup of coffee by the time we were done. It was a really rough morning. Look, the Father's love is not in Him. You know that the love that you're supposed to express to other people is the Father's love, right? You know that you're not you didn't come up with that idea. You didn't come up with the definition. You don't provide the power. The Spirit does that. Right? That's what he's saying, that if you love the world, if you're subservient to the world's authority, that is going to put a wrench in the works as far as you loving your brother. It has nothing to do with whether the father loves a person or not, loves his children or not, because the father loves all of his children, yes? And this is written to his children who have brothers in the local church. But this specific reference is that if you are loving the world, you cannot love your brother. They are mutually exclusive. You can't do it. Because love has symptoms. Right? Love has symptoms. I can tell if you love. People get offended by that today. In my pastoral ministry, I've occasionally had to say to somebody, your claim of love for your spouse or for your family member is not true. It is not true. But, 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 my endorphins. Care about your endorphins? I do not care one whit about your endorphins because love is a discipline and it's a behavior. Endorphins may or may not accompany it. I can deceive your endorphins easily. People deceive your endorphins all the time. I know probably 130 are flipping through Instagram cat photos right now for the endorphin hit, right? Not right now. Sometimes, right? Cat pig, that's what the internet used to be. That'll give you endorphins. That'll give you a hit. Seeing cute little pictures on the internet. Love for the world and the love of the Father, those two things are mutually exclusive. The Father's love has symptoms. Love for the world has symptoms. Now, loving the world actually is not a common thing, common phrase in Scripture. There's only a couple times. This is one of them. But you can flip over to 2 Timothy 4.10, and we see another one here. 2 Timothy 4.10 is actually the, 
the last section of the last chapter of the last letter that Paul wrote in his life. And look what he was having to suffer. He's encouraging Timothy. Verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. He wants Timothy with him badly. This is his son in the faith. Verse 10, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What does loving the world look like? Abandonment. It looks like abandoning your brother in his time of need. Negligence. We could say dereliction. I'm a walking thesaurus, people. I can come up with all sorts of more adjectives here, but it is a serious thing to love the world. It has symptoms. It looks like this. For all that is in the world, you're not supposed to love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh. You know, so the, the world, have you, have you noticed this? In, in the world, in order to say that you love something, you have to be able to have intercourse with it. That is not the biblical definition. That's the world, the lust of the flesh. The world, all, all that is in it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, it's covetousness. You want their stuff. It's a real offer that Satan made to Jesus. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one, right? When, when he said, I will give you all these kingdoms and all this land to Jesus right now. Thankfully, Jesus didn't love the world this way, right? It's the lust of the eyes and boastful pride of life. Two kinds of lust, one kind of pride. Everything that's in the world is like that. Everything. Under that hierarchical authoritative system that is mutually exclusive to the way the Father wants us to love each other, there's no lust of the eyes. There is no lust of the flesh. There is no pride of life that is a component of the Father's love. None. They're mutually exclusive. And that's why he says this. The world... Here's, here it is again. Remember, we talked about the passive. The world is being passed away is how maybe we should understand it. It's being pushed out by something. It is receiving an action. It's not simply dying out. It's not simply dying out. It's being overcome. And also it's lusts being passed away. You can love it. Believers can love it. You can love the world and the things of the world. You can. You can do so at the expense 
of what Christ wants you to do in this life by extending the love that the Father wants you to love other people with. You can do it, but understand this, you are investing the only love that you are capable of expressing at one time on something that is dying, that is being killed, that is being conquered. It's being passed away. It's a waste. Waste of your life. When God has provided the opportunity to love things that endure. If it were, liter- if it were some other form of fiction, literature, allegory, we would say that this, that a believer loving the world and the things in the world is an epic tragedy. An epic waste of a singular opportunity that we have to love the way God wants us to love in this life and to receive a reward from the Lord for doing that. Immortals who love things that pass away, that doesn't end well. but you can avoid that tragedy. John tells us the one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, I told you that First John has some difficulties with translation. This is one of them. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but a good number of you will have a translation in front of you that says the one who does the will of God lives forever. You have that? Some of you do. My translation says that. You know what that word lives is? Meno, the same word that is all throughout the book translated abide. Abide, remain, maybe sometimes to dwell, to live someplace permanently, to stay put. I know of no place in the New Testament where meno is translated live as simply like having eternal life. That, prob- that, t- t- that translation is problematic, isn't it? If you do the will of God the Father, then you get eternal life. How do you get eternal life, El Paso Bible Church? We trust in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. There's a couple of different synonyms. Abide is not one of them. Obey is not one of them. The one who does the will of God abides forever. I'd much rather have that truth. And it's not a matter of my opinion. It's simply a matter of translation. But it is, it is an encouraging thing rather than a slavery. Right? The one who does the will of God abides forever. It makes a difference. One of John's central commands in 1 John is to abide. Remember, it has two components. Abiding is something only a believer can do because the first component is to rest in who I am in Jesus. In other words, you need to cease from trying to earn something before Christ. Rest in who you are simply by grace, through faith. I'm a child of God. I cannot alter that fact. No one can alter it. No one can rob it from me. I cannot be separated from that love that Christ has granted to us simply by grace through faith in Him for eternal life. I can't. 
I need to rest in that truth. But abide has a second component, and that is to do what he says to do. John is only talking to believers. He is only talking to brothers. And to these brothers, he says that if you obey, you have the opportunity to abide actually into eternity from this point into eternity. Guess what you're going to be doing for eternity? You're going to be abiding. You are going to be resting in joyful abundance of your identity in Christ, and you're going to have an area of service in the kingdom and beyond that God has assigned you. You're going to be doing what he says to do. And John says, if you want the joy, the fullness of joy of that fellowship now, it's yours. If you do the will of the Father, you can abide from this day into eternity instead of wasting your love on things that are being passed away. We're all interested in some form of legacy, I think. Yeah? Proverbs talks about temporal legacy a lot, the legacy of wisdom, the legacy of discipline. I tell people, you know, because I, I built some furniture here and there, and people may not, it may not be their style, that's the thing about furniture. I made it to survive. Not for me personally, but I made the furniture to survive the six children and the centuries to come. I tell them, listen, unless you send this to goodwill or throw it in the bonfire, it can last a millennium. Peanuts. Just chicken feed in light of what the opportunity we have if we love with the Father's love and we abide into eternity. There's only one way to do that, and that's to do what he says as believers in Jesus Christ. It's all made possible because of the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf as our propitiation. Not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. First John says it just a few verses earlier. But we remember, we remembered, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so that we can proclaim his death until he comes. Can proclaim the basis that we have life in Jesus Christ simply by grace through faith. And this morning I want to encourage you, we, we remember now so that we can proclaim later and, and until Jesus comes. And you can get frustrated. People are stacking beanie weenies in their closet and they're worried about nuclear war, water. You know what should be of your primary concern is that Jesus is returning. We proclaim his death until he comes. And if you think this mess in this world is bad right now, you need to go back and listen to our Revelation series in Sunday school because that's what comes after Jesus comes for the church. And we do need to love enough to proclaim his death until he comes. So I'd encourage you to take this opportunity to do that from this day and have 
your work, your love abide into eternity. So I'm going to give us a few moments uh, before we bless the elements and pass them out for you to pray, spend that time before the Lord as you will, and then I'll call the men forward. And if you would come forward. sins 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, 
saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you stand with us, we'll dismiss with a song. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as His body on earth. As we share in His suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and we'll join in the feast of table of the key. You're dismissed. See you guys next week.